0: Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor, Matt Goldberg, and with me is managing editor, Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today, we will be talking about the 2020 Oscars, the ceremony aired last night. Big congratulations to Parasite and director Bong Joon-ho. The film won four Oscars. And so on this episode, what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk kind of about the good, the bad, and the ugly of this year's show, Uh, what we liked, what was not so great, and where the Oscars have some serious work to do. Um, As far as predictions go, I did okay. I should have listened to my first instinct, and I sort of, at the last minute, was like, well, maybe Klaus does have a shot, and I would, it didn't. (laughs) And so, like, at my ballot, I, I, again, I hit that 75%. I got, like, 19 out of uh, 24 so, you know, that's, that's just where I live. You did very well, Adam. You got 22 out of 24.
1: I did. I made some changes and those changes ended up being for the best as, as opposed to for the worst. Like I was kind of convinced, like if you listened to the podcast last week, you know, I was kind of convinced on a few categories. I think like costume design, I changed like four times mm-hmm. and then ultimately it was like, ah, okay. Little women, final answer. Um, and production design, I was going back and forth. Um, but ultimately just kind of went with my gut on a lot of stuff and it, and it turned out and everyone said we were crazy for picking parasite for best picture and yet
0: and, and yet well you know i mean we acknowledged that it was sort of a it was a tug of war between our you know the head and the gut you know yeah. our uh, you know if you wanted to look at it with your head there were plenty of things that said 1917 you know all the indicators were there but we decided eh, let's believe in something like you don't like here's <laughs> the thing like if i bet parasite's going to win best picture and i'm wrong i don't fucking I don't lose anything, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know? So. Yeah. It's no harm, no foul.
1: So it's, it's just kind of like bragging rights. But, uh, yeah, in past years I had been kind of a stat hound and been going after statistics and like, well, this says this and that says that. Um, and this year was like, you know what? I feel like parasite has the goods to go all the way. And it did.
0: And you wrote a good article on the site today about why it went all the way. And I think, you know, the, the main thing you seized on is like, we saw kind of a glimmer Of an international film going all the way last year with Roma, which picked up best director, best foreign language film and best cinematography, but it didn't get the top award. And you made the good point that the thing about Roma is, even though it's very well made, it's also a bit of a sit. It's not, it's a long film. It's kind of quiet. It's a film that you kind of got to work for. Whereas Parasite is just straight up entertaining. Like it's a, it's a film with a lot going on and like, it's also incredibly well-made, but Parasite is fun. It's a fun film to watch. Like you enjoy the experience even when it's very heavy.
1: And I think it also benefited from, I think that's right. I think that, you know, with Roma, everyone was like, Oh, it's such a beautiful film and it's so masterfully constructed. And like, is it fun? Well, not really. And you know, Emotionally, it doesn't really kick in until the third act, but you have to get through the first part of it for it to emotionally work uh, on that level, because you have to kind of live the life of the people. So it was kind of a hard recommend as well, and I still don't think like I don't know anyone in my own like personal life who I speak to face to face who has seen Roma. which makes me think a lot of Academy voters just also didn't watch that movie. And Parasite, on the other hand, like everyone just is raving about. And I had been hearing on the award circuit that you, you see actors or directors talking about what movies or uh, things that they liked this year, and everyone was talking about Parasite. I think it's super fun and an easy recommend. But I also think yeah, something that Avengers Endgame had for it was you know it's very surprising and twisty. Like Anytime I would recommend Parasite, I would say I don't want to tell you too much about it It has some crazy twists and turns in it, but it's really fun and really uh, impactful. Um, So I think that was also part of it. And I think that's, you know, we're seeing films like that do well in theaters where it's like you got to see it and you got to see it soon or else you'll get spoiled or, you know, you got to see it on the biggest screen possible or else you won't get the full experience or full effect.
0: Yeah. In a weird way, it used to be, you know, a movie was, Oh, this is a good movie. Go see the good movie. And now it sort of has to make a case for itself for, well, why don't I, why can I just wait till it's on streaming? And so, like you said, if it's not, there has to be something that says, no, 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 you have to see it soon. And you have to see it in a theater. Um, and I also think, uh, something else that sort of worked in Parasite's favor is that it was theatrical, that it wasn't through Netflix. Netflix, you know, the thing is, is that Netflix, you know, they can rack up all these nominations and you see it on the Emmys as well. They're great at racking up nominations. Netflix really struggles to bring home the the awards. This year, for all, like, you know, The Irishman would have had 10 nominations and got zero wins. Uh, Netflix, I think, got two awards on the night. Neon got four. Now, granted, it was all for one film, but, like, for Netflix to be in the game with uh, Marriage Story and Irishman and The Two Popes, you know... And and you know, it didn't matter really. No. Uh which was interesting.
1: I mean it, it feels a little bit like Netflix is still relegated to the kids table. Like it's it's now won two best documentary feature Oscars, I believe, Icarus and then now uh American Factory this year. Um but yeah, in the big categories, I don't know, you it it felt like they had the slam dunk with the Irishman and early on in the season it was a seemed like it was a fight between the Irishman and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with Marriage Story playing a possible spoiler, Marriage Story being kind of the, the critically acclaimed favorite out of uh, that fall festival circuit. But those three movies just kind of fell away and, and we had this late stage surge by 1917 and Parasite was there all along.
0: Yeah, and Vulture made the good point that you know Parasite kind of played the, the moonlight role in the sense of like here's this critically acclaimed film everyone really likes it no one's really saying anything bad about it but it's also not overplaying its hand in terms of its rollout it's not being too ostentatious so it can't like no blowback is really building up so it becomes this sort of little film that could and then all of a sudden it's it's the winner
1: yeah like people are saying you know oh wouldn't it be so great if Paris Light or Moonlight won but that'll probably never happen and yet they both did, and they both did in unique ways. I mean, Moonlight uh, it only won Best Picture with two other Oscars, so three total, three Oscars in total. And I think Spotlight did it with two. Spotlight won screenplay and picture. Mm-hmm. Did it win any others? Nope. I think it was only two, right? Only two. Yeah. So like, long gone are the days when Return of the King or The English Patient or Braveheart is kind of like steamrolling the Oscars and just winning everything which
0: I like which I think is better I think it gets boring when one film is just constantly you know winning everything
1: yeah and we talked about this in our predictions that like the screenplay categories are kind of the cool kids table that's kind of where people give awards to movies like her or get out um that they're not going to give best picture to um but can still kind of spread the love around that's kind of a new notion because it used to be you know editing screenplay picture and director by and large kind of went hand in hand Yeah, for quite a while.
0: Well, and that's the thing we're looking at sort of, you know, the Academy actively worked to expand its membership. And I think with this bit with a, with a broader, more diverse membership, you're seeing that love get spread around. And then also international features. I, I read, uh, in Vanity Fair that apparently, uh, international voters now make up like one fifth of the Academy. And I think that's going to really bode well for you know international features going forward for your Romas and your parasites of the world.
1: It's significant, and I and I think I I think expanding your horizons by watching foreign language films is necessary if you're a serious uh, film banner or cinephile. You're really only getting part of the picture, and I say this as someone who could do a lot better in that regard. But some of my favorite films that uh, of the past decade have been foreign language films that I saw at film festivals or um, you know, people had had recommended that I check out. I mean, even this year pain and glory is a really fantastic movie. It's one of the best films of the year. Uh, And it's in Spanish. And, you know, hopefully I think what's really cool about parasites when, uh, aside from like bong and that entire cast, just being like super gracious and happy and joyous, um, is the fact that so many people are now interested in Parasite? They're like, well, I guess I have to see Parasite, which you didn't get the sense that last year Green Book's win was convincing people to see Green Book. Because, like, problem problematic aspects aside, Green Book is just like it's the kind of movie that wins uh, like wins Oscars in the '90s. It's the kind of movie that you feel like you've seen, even if you haven't seen it. I mean, it was
0: the- it was um, even probably by its own definition a reverse driving Miss Daisy.
1: Yeah. Exactly. So it was kind of like, oh, yeah, Green Book 1, what's that about? Oh, okay. Maybe I'll see it. Whereas Parasite, it's just something, it feels new and fresh and exciting and different. And I'm really excited that uh, people are seeking out a Korean-language film.
0: Well, and I also think it sort of speaks to the immediacy of the moment. I think, you know, when Bong Joon-ho says, you know, it's about the country we all live in called capitalism, I think that gives uh, Parasite an immediacy and taps into the zeitgeist in a way that, you know, as much as I love, you know, little women. And I think little women is still very much about the zeitgeist because it's in period clothes. It doesn't get recognized as happening now, you know, yeah. even though it's a film that really is talking about, you know, women's roles now and women's stories and what do women want? Um, it's set, you know, it's a period film. And so in that way, it's like, well, it's not as immediate. Um, and then, you know, in a weird way, marriage story, even though it is present day, it feels kind of timeless, <laughs> you know, because yes. it's about relationships. But then, you know, 1917 is World War One. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is, uh, you know, 1969. And then, you know, so these other films are sort of, you know, living in this other space. And Parasite is about a conversation that we're having, especially now, especially in an election year, um, about, you know, what do we want out of these economic systems that sort of fix us in place even though we had no choice in the matter
1: yeah yeah are you i think you put it uh, best when you you said the film is about the myth of social mobility like that's essentially what it is like it's it is impossible in these capitalist systems to uh change social strata or i guess I- improbable
0: it's, it's highly unlikely. It's more, unlikely. it's, a, it's, it's, it's the myth of capital. It's that sort of the, the, the trick of capitalism, the idea of social mobility that never really manifests. See, yeah. parasite. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying like the that's the to me that's one of the magic tricks of Parasite, which is that it takes this very downer view, like, like <laughs> and and, and, the, and also it's not like Bong Joon Ho like suddenly became a downer. Like, watch Oakja or Snowpiercer. He is very pessimistic about the world and so yeah. and and uh, social classes, um, but he knows how to wrap it in an entertaining feature. He's not here to preach at you. He's here to say, I have something to say, but I'm also going to give it to you in sort of this really effective uh, package. Yeah, he uses
1: genre to his advantage. And, um, you know, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that he grew up idolizing these American filmmakers like Martin Scorsese um, and uh, Steven Spielberg, James Cameron. Uh, and his peers are people like Quentin Tarantino. Um, he, he's just like... You know his films are Korean, but they they have this kind of um, there's a bit of a, an American patina to uh, kind of the way that they're crafted a little bit. I would say.
0: Yeah, I was funny. I would sort of think like to me the other sort of his con- the, his most notable contemporary is Park Chan Wook because uh, they both kind of came up at the same time because um, Bong had Memories of Murder in 2003 and Park had uh, uh, Old Boy. And yeah, I was just sort of thinking about the two of them and sort of like how their careers have, like, sort of you know, how they've been similar and how they've been different. I'm like, I wonder if Park Chan Wook could ever catch on in the same way that Bong has. And I'm, I think, you know, it's funny the, to me, the, the biggest hurt for Park Chan Wook is his films are so unapologetically sexual. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that's not to say like that makes Bong's film fat, it's just. I was thinking about like Chan, all the Park Chan wook films I've seen, like Stoker and Thirst and The Handmaiden and Old Boy. Like there's a lot of sex in those movies. Yes. Yeah. And
1: The Handmaiden is great. Oh, that it's movie fantastic. Is... I would honestly like if I were to compare Bong's sensibilities, it would I would I don't know. I would say it it kind of feels like if David Fincher and Edgar Wright had a baby. Mm-hmm. Like this meticulousness, this uh very uh handcrafted frame but then also like using genre to uh your benefit yeah and this i would layer say like with a heavy
0: it, dose of like patty shayefsky in there with the social commentary
1: yeah yeah and then you know a, a undercurrent of dark humor um it's funny i i watched memories of murder recently and i was like wow this movie's a lot like zodiac and then saw that it came out four years before zodiac which it's very funny because it it's it's very similar and I think Bong just recently revealed in a, in a big Q and a, he does that Fincher thing where he stitches performances together in the frame. Sometimes taking, um, you know, if two actors are in a frame, the actor on the left and the, uh, like the take that he used from the actor on the left, maybe take three and the take that he used from the actor on the right, maybe take seven and he stitches them together, which is something that Fincher does. It's just very meticulous in terms of crafting performance.
0: Yeah. You no, know, I mean, he's a, he's a guy that knows what he wants. Um, And no, and I'm very sort of curious because what happens to what happens with his career from here, because he essentially now has like a blank check with, you know, for his next feature. Uh, not, not a, not obviously like, yeah, now I want $200 million, but like, you know, he's going to have a lot more freedom. Like a lot of people are going to be coming. It's like, what do you want to do next? Now that we can say from the director of parasite, um, but it's just been fascinating because he's sort of, has, up to this point, has been kind of like more of like a film Twitter darling with Snowpiercer and Okja. Um, and sort of where does he go from here? Yeah, I was
1: thinking about that. I mean, he said he won't do like a Marvel movie or whatever. But this is kind of where, you know, a, a particularly dismaying thing, I think we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later about, uh, you know, Oscar winners, is it doesn't always equal success after no, you it doesn't. have won the Oscar. That's true. And I was thinking back on um, – uh you know the some of the recent winners and uh some of the films that they've made and uh you think about like you know Ang Lee w- won the best director Oscar for Life of Pi his next movie was Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk not great uh you know Tom Hooper won the Oscar for The King's Speech his next film was Les Misérables uh you know obviously Michelle has vicious who won for the artist don't really know what he's been up to since then. So it, it kind of takes the pressure off in a way because it's not like everyone who wins a best director Oscar then immediately goes to make another masterpiece or to make another thing that's even, you know, on the level of like, yes, this should be considered for Oscars. Um, you know, just go look at the campaign for Billy Lynn's long halftime walk. Yeah. So, you know, I think he's going to keep doing his own thing. Uh, he, Said he was writing two films over the past year in interviews and everything he's been saying. He's been writing two new films. Uh, one is in Korean with elements of horror in it, and then another one is uh, in English. So I think he'll continue doing that.
0: Yeah. So yeah, my I mean the thing with the with the Parasite win and for and all the wins for Bong Joon is I just to me that was the Oscars at its best, where it doesn't reinforce sort of powerhouse films. I mean, Parasite did well, has done well at the box office relative to its budget and, you know, to be a film from South Korea. But I hope that, you know, these wins send people out to be like, ooh, I want to see more South Korean cinema or I want to see more films by Bong Joon-ho. Yes.
1: Are you talking about Joker? Are you talking about how sad you are that Joker didn't win Best Picture?
0: Uh, can I just say, so, I know, so throughout the night they show clips from all the nominees. Every time a clip from Joker shows everyone at my Oscar party started laughing because mm-hmm. it's not a film like even in context, it's not great out of context. You would, you have like Joaquin Phoenix being like, I just want to know my dad. And then he gets punched mm. in the face or whatever. Like we were all just cracking up. It,
1: yeah. I, you know, I don't know. I find it interesting that it now joins the like ranks of uh, like American house. Well, not American Hustle exactly, but like just because you get, the most Oscar nominations does not mean you're going to win any major Oscars. I mean, Joaquin Phoenix's win is a, is a major Oscar, but that was kind of a gimme. We kind of knew that going in. But it wasn't like Joker's surprise with like a best editing win or a best screenplay win. Um, it just kind of won the, is it two awards? Three two, awards. Two. One After
0: and score. Which were yeah. the ones people expected it to win. Yeah, exactly. So,
1: and I'm fine with those two wins. Like, it's fine. They were fine. But, you know, I, I feel like we maybe made um, much ado about nothing, um,
0: which is of- fitting for the Joker. <laughs> which <laughs> is fitting for that film. Much ado about nothing. Very true. Very true. Um, so something else I wanted to talk about, you know, for the good of the of the night, is the ceremony. Is I think that presenting duos are sort of a strong way to do the show without a host. Um, I really liked. I liked. Uh, I liked sort of uh, Steve Martin and Chris Rock doing a, doing a, that opening together. I thought they played off each other very well. Um, I like, I think, you know, Rudolph and Wig are hilarious together. And uh, I even like, even though it was advertising for downhill, uh, Louis Dreyfus and Farrell sort of bouncing off each other. I think when you get two- They were funnier
1: in that presentation than they are in downhill. That is true. <laughs> that's true.
0: And that's the thing. Like when you get like two funny people together and have them sort of bounce off each other, I think you can get something really good. I think honestly, one of the, the best hosting jobs from, I think it was 2010 which was when uh, it was Steve Martin and Alec Baldwin. And that seemed like kind of like a weird duo, but I thought they did a really good job together. I did too. And I think when you like sort of put two sort of personalities together, I think a, it, it takes the burden off just a single host to carry everything, but also it gives you a fun interplay. And then by just making them presenters, you kind of take the burden off hosting in general a weird thing they did last night was like, we're going to have a presenter for a presenter who will then present an award. Like, and even by the end of the show, they were acknowledging this is stupid. (laughs) Why, why are we doing this? This is just adding time to the show. Um, you didn't really need it. Um, I think, I think having presenting duos were good, but, um, I think ultimately having presenting duos showed was another sign that, I don't think you really need a host, or at least well, let's talk about this because we've now seen two years in a row without a host, and you had some thoughts on this.
1: yeah uh I think you know last year, everyone had their knives out, uh, so to speak, because uh, the ceremony or you know uh, the Oscars were such a blunder leading up to that. There was the popular film Oscar, there was the you know, we're going to present three Oscars off air. Um, and then, you know, Kevin Hart was briefly attached to host and then dropped out. Uh, and the ceremony was good. Like the telecast was genuinely good, uh, without Oscars. They brought out, uh, gosh, it was Tina Fey, Maya Rudolph and Amy Poehler, I think were the first people to come on stage. It was Rudolph,
0: Poehler, and Fey were the first people on stage.
1: And they did like five minutes, very funny, uh, really kick things off in a fun way. And, um, or maybe it began with like a queen performance and then went into them i can't remember exactly um but it was nice like the telecast cast went really well um it kind of breezed by it was shorter than usual uh which made sense without a host and i, I felt like they they used their time well this year without a host i don't think it went very well i think steve martin and chris rock kind of stumbled through that opening monologue uh, martin kind of had trouble landing the punchlines mm. um, which was a bit of a bummer and I didn't necessarily think the jokes were that great, and that Janelle Monae performance was kind of weird. I, I, you know, I guess. Well, the Janelle so,
0: Monae performance ties into my one of my larger issues with the show. About, what, but we'll get to that later.
1: Yeah, I mean, it basically, just like I think that we've seen two examples of no host, and there's a way to do it right and a way to not do it correctly. And like this Oscars, it didn't make sense that you have no host, so you have more time. But then you're just going to bring celebrities out to introduce other celebrities to then introduce a category? There was no reason to do that. Like why was George Mackay in the balcony?
0: What was the point of that? To introduce Olivia uh, Coleman. Okay. Like that's, it's just killing time. And, and a show that been- ran way over. Yeah, and
1: like if, if they had been meaningful introductions, that would have been fine. If they were funny, or if they were interesting, if they had anything other than the canned narration that was already written to say, then sure, go for it. I think Josh Gad did the best. Like It felt yes. like he had rewritten that a bit, and it was very funny. Um, but the others, it was just kind of, you know, I, like I love Anthony Ramos, but I don't really know why he had to introduce Lin-Manuel Miranda, who then introduced a clip montage. <laughs> So that – I don't know. That was just kind of baffling to me. I think that that was the wrong way to use the time.
0: I agree. Now, I'm personally sort of like overall I think there shouldn't be a host anymore. I think it's kind of a holdover, and I think it's a bad job. Um, it's a bad job to have because ultimately at the end of the day what's going to happen is, is some comedian is going to have to go into the room, and then they're going to have to serve two different audiences who want different things. And I've talked about this before, where the audience in the room kind of wants to be coddled. They kind of want Ellen. They want to be like, you're on my side. And like, you can rib us a little bit, you know, but don't go too far. And don't make fun of this night. This is a very important night. And if you could just also feed us while we're here, that'd be great too. Um, But please don't go too far. And then there's like, do you want to serve the audience at home? So you get like a Jon Stewart kind of host who's like, this is all pretty silly. (laughs) And like, I'm on your side at home. And like, but the people in the room do not like that. And then at the end, some TV critic is like, the host did a bad job. <laughs> I can't remember ever seeing it like a host was like that. They did a good job. Like, it's always like, oh, the people in the room weren't happy or, you know, the jokes weren't landing. And so it's like, it's an impossible thing. Or they were, you know, if it's like an LN thing, it's like people in the room were happy, but it was too, you know, fawning over celebrities. Like it's a lose lose situation. Um, and it's just not worth it to you. if if you're like a like a A list comedian and like you have your own brand, the Oscars can only bring you down. It cannot help you. So why go through it? Why why put up with it? And especially with declining ratings, you know, just it's not good for for I can see why everyone would turn it down like i saw people tweeting last night i was like why didn't they just get rudolph and Wig to host and i'm like i'm bet i wonder if they probably maybe that made them an offer it's like hey would you like to host the whole thing and they said no because it's a lot of work and it's we're gonna get a lot of blowback it's not a good offer
1: here's do you want to hear my prediction on what will uh happen next year kevin hart (laughs) no okay dwayne johnson Dwayne Johnson. Dwayne Johnson will be the host next year. The, it's the lowest rated telecast uh, ever. And they're going to be like, what can we do? Well, the only answer is to bring in a host who will bring in more viewers. So.
0: Yeah. and the th- But, you know, the kicker is, is like, yeah, you know, they'll bring in Dwayne Johnson and the show will still be bad. And it won't be Dwayne Johnson's fault, but he'll get blamed. Because yeah. ultimately, like, Dwayne Johnson's at the mercy of the producers. And the producers are going to be like, okay, now we need to have, you know, a tribute to you know food and film you know and it'll we'll be like what and then five yeah. minutes will be like a montage of like ah, oh, look at this great food scene and they'll be like what and that's just the well, thing that will happen
1: well and he'll have you know his superhero debut opens next year i think jungle cruise stronger cruise this year this next year. year this year so it'll be coming off of that you know i, I it, and he has already been approached for it and had to turn it down. So I just feel like that's probably where they're going to go, because I, I don't know what else. Like you know, and it's ABC who has a problem with it, and it's a stupid thing because no one watches live things anymore. So it's just, it's just a reflection of the viewership. Yeah, habits. it's not
0: like all the other award shows are doing fantastic, but it's the Oscars no. that are declining.
1: Yeah, they're all down. And, you know, my argument all along has been just cater to the people who like the Oscars. Stop trying to cater to people who don't like the Oscars because they're not going to watch it anyway. Or if they watch it, they'll watch it for a bit and then turn it off and then complain about it regardless and say, I don't know what. I've never heard of Parasite. I don't care. Where are the celebrities? So, right.
0: It'll be stupid. But yeah. I think that's what'll happen. Um,. And then, so and that kind of brings my final good thing about the night is I do like the pageantry of the Oscars. Like there are some people who are like, oh, that's dumb. I actually kind of like, and I, we've thought, we agree on this. Like I do like the montages. I do like yeah. the, the tributes to such and such when they're done well. Sometimes they're not always done well, but I like the idea of it. Um, I certainly liked the, uh, the Ilsa's of the world singing frozen Two. I thought that was a fun touch. Yeah. Um, you know, I, you know, I'm not totally on board with, with best original song as a category, but it's kind of there now to add more pageantry to the show itself. So,
1: so be it. And Cynthia Rivo's performance was incredible. Yeah, that, that was, was great. Good.
0: Like, yeah, you nice. know, you kind of have to sit through, uh, what there was one, there was, there was a
1: was it breakthrough
0: breakthrough was not good. Uh, um, Randy
1: Newman was just kind of like Randy Dizzler. Newman. They're that the was same. the
0: one that was rough. <laughs> that was the one that was rough.
1: This is not a song that's been written to be performed live. It's a song that's been written to play over a
0: montage of toys yeah. having fun. And meanwhile, everyone like who's really in a film is like Glasgow should have been nominated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I did,
1: you know, I, I liked the pageantry as well. One of my favorite things of this year's telecast was the montages they did for all the acting categories. So as opposed to just showing like a cry worthy clip of, um, you know, one uh, per actor, they, they you know, did a ont- Yes, yeah. yeah, so you get, like, different shades of each performance, which I thought was really nice. Although, the, the clip they decided to show for, it was either for uh, Marriage Story or for Adam Driver was like, oof, that's not the one you want to show from. <laughs> I mean, it's... Probably his most emotionally devastating. Well, one of his many emotionally devastating moments in the film. But when he's screaming about wanting her to die, yeah, yeah. that's that's a rough one to show. <laughs> the rough one to throw at me in the middle of the Oscar ceremony. Yeah, I kind of like PTSD flashbacks to watching that movie. So, yeah. <laughs> but I, I like the idea of because one of my favorite things, and it was I guess it was a while ago now, was when they brought out five different previous Oscar winners to talk about. Each nominee individually. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really cool.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, I like the pageantry of it. If you're someone who's like, oh, Hollywood's too into itself, you probably shouldn't watch the Oscars. That's like watching this, watching, you know, the, uh, the Super Bowl and be like, this is too violent. I'm like, yeah, that's football. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's the game. If, I mean, if you have issues, like, you have, if you have a problem with the essential, uh, you know, if you, the essence of the thing, it's not for you. And that's fine. Not everything needs to be for everyone. Well, that's
1: always my counter argument. Like I don't watch football. So I I would never expect, you know, the NFL to be like, what, what would make you watch the Super Bowl? What do you want us to change about it? And we'll do it to try and get you to watch it. Like, I I don't really care about football either way. So
0: I don't do that. I'm not the person you should be listening to. Yeah. Listen to your fans. Like listen to the audience that is making it a point to tune in rather than the people that are ambivalent. Yeah, so to the to the, to the, inali- ah, the alienation of your loyal viewers. Exactly, yeah. All right, let's move on to the things that I don't think worked so well, and this is one point where we're going to differ, as I gathered from our pre-show discussion. Uh, I didn't like Eminem showing up 18 years <laughs> after 8 Mile came out to sing Lose Yourself.
1: I loved it why did you love it (laughs) well for one it was like the only surprising thing that had happened in the entire show at that point Mm. Um, because most of the winners were kind of predictable and everything Um, I don't know it just like injected so much energy like I don't like Uh, It's hard to describe, but it was so random that it also was great for me. And I kind of enjoyed watching the befuddlement and joy of everyone in the room um, trying to make sense of
0: what had happened. It was interesting watching who's bopping along and who's like, what the fuck is this? Yeah,
1: Martin Scorsese is like, who's this now? Um, But yeah, I don't know. I thought it it makes no sense. I mean, I, I guess ostensibly it was just because... Eminem didn't show up to perform when that song was nominated because he didn't think he'd win, and he won. Um, so it was kind of like a makeup thing. And I know they've had on the table for a few years now um, for Barry Jenkins to come back and do like a proper best picture acceptance for Moonlight because that got uh, so screwed up. And he declined um, the year after, saying it was still kind of too fresh and stuff. Um, so maybe that was part of it, but I I still really have no idea why it happened. But I enjoyed it thoroughly.
0: It just felt kind of like, hello there, you know, how do you do fellow kids with like, <laughs> ah, Eminem, ah, we're going to make it, you know, ah, here's, here's someone who is both aggressive and yet has been around so long. He is now part of the establishment of which he gets, he used to rail against. Huzzah. And well, so like, it's, it was just weird. And it's like, what of all the things you can spend your time on? It's like, it's not like, you know, it kind of just reminded me, it reminded me that Curtis Hansen is dead. <laughs> That's what it reminded me of. Like, yeah. oh, the director of 8 Mile is dead. <laughs> I didn't think about that. I we were just
1: watching the montage and it got to Lose Yourself and then it was like lingering a little too long on Lose Yourself and someone in the room was like, "Is Eminem going to perform?" And I was like, "Surely not." And then Eminem came up under the stage. Yeah. <laughs> to perform. But it cut to Billie Eilish and I turned to my fiance I was like, "Do you think she even knows what song this is?" Like it was a long time. It was almost 2 decades ago that that song came out. So
0: yeah. It is,
1: it, if you're trying to be hip for the kids, I don't think that performance really did it. Eminem doesn't really hold the same cultural impact. No, I
0: at. don't think it's it's yeah. hip for the kids, but it's sort of hip for the millennials, I guess. I don't. know.
1: Yeah, thirty-somethings, thirty-somethings. You're like, yes, like yeah,
0: this is my bop.
1: I too bleached my hair yellow.
0: I actually did that. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a photo okay. floating around. <laughs> Frosted, I did not whatever fro- frosted, glad frosted, that frosted that you... tips Matt Goldberg is out there. Uh, did you have a puka shell necklace? No, I had a Chinese character necklace, which is so <laughs> much gross. worse. I, I had the puka shells. <laughs> nice.
1: But, uh, did not have the Chinese. Uh, yeah.
0: Just If you haven't really been a teenager unless everything about your life is embarrassing back then, you should not look back on your teenage years and like, yep, I did it all right. <laughs>
1: I'm thinking of uh, Jonah Hill and 21 Jump Street.
0: <laughs> I know. Oh, oh, the real Slim Shady. Oh, mwah. what a perfect uh, film. So good. Uh, so, another thing I didn't really, I had an issue with last night is I wasn't, cr- I thought Brad Pitt and Laura Dern had really good speeches. Uh, I was not impressed with Phoenix and Zellweger. Phoenix was kind of all over the place. Like, I mean, he kept trying to bring it back to, um, you know, sort of. How one culture sort of will, uh, you know, subjugate another. And he he was willing to expand it to species. And so to make sort of a very pro vegan argument. And uh, I certainly didn't expect to hear about cow insemination on the Oscars. And like, it's fine if like you're passionate about veganism and that's and animal rights. I don't think that's wrong. I just think the way that he sort of laid it all out there felt like kind of like it was raw, but also in a way that. I'm of the opinion, like if you if you think like if you if you want to use your time like your award expectant speech and you know you're probably gonna win. Like the other thing is like all the actors knew they were probably gonna win. Then their agents like no one no one was super duper surprised. Um, if you know that you're like I'm trying to make a point and really that really lands with people, maybe find the best way to say it if you're making a political statement rather than like, Oh, how do I thank all these people? Like when people are scatterbrained about like, Oh, there's so many people to thank that I'm more forgiving of. Cause there are, they're just, they're, you're so worried. You're going to leave someone out. And like the moment is very big. Um, but like when you're like, I have a political point to make, I feel like it should be made more directly than yeah. Phoenix made it. Uh, I did like at the end when he, when he mentioned his brother, I thought that was very moving.
1: Well, and so here's the thing. I'm going to defend Joaquin Phoenix. Okay. Um, a couple things. One thing is, like, I think we saw last night, it's very clear that that stage is it's is very, um, it makes you nervous. Like, when mm. Brad Pitt and Taika Waititi sound nervous, like, mm. that's surprising. And I think getting up on that stage does something to you. The other thing is, and I was talking to my fiancé about this, and she it's, uh, she's the one who brought this up, and I think, I didn't think about this, and I think it's a very good point, and I feel like it's probably true. Um... River Phoenix was supposed to be what Joaquin Phoenix is doing right now. Mm. He was the one of that family. He was this, you know, ingenue, this incredible young actor who was going on to great things. And he died tragically too soon. And she said, she thinks that in some ways, Joaquin feels he's living the life that River should have led. And he's trying to lead it. He's trying to live it in the best way. And he's fucked up a lot. And, I think the I think you could hear it in his voice when he was talking about River at the end of yeah. that speech that he's very much at the forefront of his mind and you know the weight of feeling like you're somewhat of a fraud and you're kind of trying to do right by your brother who should have been here and he should have been the one to do all of these things um is upsetting and I think it it kind of and River I think was also very passionate about these political issues and and uh you know veganism as well um it, it just, like, I don't know, that kind of Colored it for me, and I think that kind of Locked a few things into place for me about I think walking. That's
0: a fair point, that is a fair point and, I, and
1: kind of the difficulty of the life he's been Leading, and you know when he was talking about You know, he's been a scoundrel and all this stuff I think he's kind of meoculting to the fact that Like, you know, I have I am living I am still alive. I am you know however many years old now and and River died when he was what twenty four something like that. Um, you know, I am doing so much more than than I ever deserved to do because River is the one who should have been doing all of this. so I thought that was i I think that makes sense to me, and that makes sense why this speech was a little, and if maybe he knew that he was gonna end it with that river quote that kind of colored his nervousness and anxiety. I mean, he tried like three or four times to get that out. It was really kind of heartbreaking at the end there.
0: You know, that's a fair point. And I think maybe my own fatigue with the night, I mean, we were yeah. past 11 o'clock at that point. Yeah. Um, may have colored my perception. So I think you made it was a good a- point.
1: It was a bit of a scattered speech, and I think you know to to people who I mean we, the local news came on afterwards, and they were kind of making fun of him, and I was like, I don't really think that's fair. But
0: well, I don't of, think that's also the spark, the place of the local fucking news.
1: No, but it was like you know, uh, Tulsa like,
0: Five is going to go after <laughs> Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah.
1: it's like you know the Hollywood elite here they are preaching on a soapbox again, but like. To, to his credit, Joaquin has been walking this walk for a long time. It's not like this new thing that Joaquin has decided to, you know, all of a sudden be popular and cool. Right. He and uh, Rooney Mara, his uh, girlfriend, are, are clearly very passionate about this stuff and are living that, you know, um, living as activists. So. Yeah. But yeah, I but I did think Renee Zellweger kind of whiffed it on her speech.
0: Well her speech is just so was so all over the place that I kind of just zoned out eventually. And I was just the thing that like confused me is again, like you know you're gonna win. Have something in mind. Yeah. <laughs> and especially for, for Renee Zellweger, which is all, like the entire narrative has been like this is my comeback vehicle. Yeah. You know, like you knew that this, like your plan was for everything to culminate in this moment, Renee. Why yeah. why why are you just rambling? Yeah,
1: it was a it again, I mean it felt like that stage did something. I mean Tyka's speech, I was yeah, like, but, All right, here okay. come the funnies.
0: But yeah. here here's the thing. Zellweger was also kind of rambling at the Golden Globes. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm I mean I'm kind of glad
1: she won. I think it, it it's not an undeserving performance. I didn't really have a problem with any of the acting ones. Um I thought Laura Turn's speech was, was nicely emotional.
0: Yeah. You know, it was fine. It was fine. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's talk about the big problem of the night. Um, the ugly. That Joker didn't win enough awards. I know, that Joker didn't win. And I think, you know, when you think about it, Joker speaks to what America is right now. <laughs> no. <laughs> Fuck Joker. Um, so, no, the ugly of, of the show is that, so you had, a sh- you had a bunch of nominations that were, with the exception of, exception of Cynthia Erivo, um, getting nominated for best actress were largely white. Um, and then you had all these, you know, male directors in a year where there were very good, you know, female directors that you could have nominated. And it felt like the, there was a strong, we'll fix it on the day energy. Like, so the Academy was like, well, we didn't get it right in the nominations process. I guess if we just acknowledge it in the show, will balance it all out. So, you know, you have Janelle Monáe who's doing this big kind of, you know, Broadway kind of number, but then she's like I'm a queer black woman. Um and it's like, well that's cool, and it's like but you know, the thing is is that at the end of the day, people rarely remember the performances. Like I mean, unless it's something like a like fantastically great are tragically horrible, the most indelible marks that an Oscar uh, can make is the win itself. And I say that as someone who thought like Bong Joon-ho's like direct best director speech was fantastic. I thought that was off the charts, but I think what's going to be really remembered is that Parasite won Best Picture. I think, you know, I think that's the more important legacy. Um, and I think, you know, so the Academy trying to be like, well, we didn't nominate any female directors, but here's Brie Larson and Gal Gadot and Sigourney Weaver to say all women are superheroes, which no, <laughs> like no, no, not all men and not all women are superheroes. There are good and bad in everyone. Um, that just felt like a really pandering thing to say, to be honest. Um, yeah. And that there was that pandering that felt what that, that really kind of stuck in my craw in the evening. That sort of like, we fucked like the Academy sort of, implicitly acknowledging that the, that its list of winners was not good enough or a list of nominees was not good enough. And yet it sort of hamfistedly tried to address it within the, within the show itself.
1: Yeah. I mean, I understand that the producers of the Oscars didn't vote for these Oscars. They didn't choose this mostly white lineup um, of performers, but I think there's a fine line to walk there between like including like a diverse lineup of presenters and then trying to like ham fistedly make up for the fact that not a ton of uh people of color were nominated in the acting categories. I mean it it's nice that Parasite won. I think that speaks volumes, but I you know it's a little much when uh when you're trying to lean in on all that stuff.
0: Yeah. I mean ultimately there are there are other there are factors at play like you know Hollywood has to make more films that promote more diversity but also I think Oscar the Academy does need to start looking inward a bit and being like well we have these five you know we have why why were why wasn't there more diversity this year why did we not nominate uh Lupita Nyong'o for us was it because the film came out in March and therefore we couldn't pay attention to it Was it because the film is horror and we have a bias against that? There needs to be some sort of introspection about why certain roles and performances, for whatever reason, are not being acknowledged. Yeah. Yeah, I found that
1: strange. I mean, you know, one thing I don't love about these last few years is that... It seems like every year all four acting winners are sewn up in November, and then it's just kind of a march towards inevitability, save for Olivia Coleman winning over Glenn Close. That was a genuine surprise. Um, Not many predicted that would happen, but... By and large, we just kind of decide that, like, well, Walking Phoenix gave this transformative performance for Joker, and we are going to give him the Oscar, and that's that, without any further discussion of, you know, the nuance of Adam Driver's performance in Marriage Story, or you know, even the, you know, how Leonardo DiCaprio's performance in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood differs from his other uh, leading mad performances, and you know,
0: yeah, I think of, I think honestly, like, and I'm not including, you know. I think Oscar prognosticators are also sort of part of the problem. I'm not. I'm not saying you because you write about other things and have a wider view about what's <laughs> happening. But I definitely think like there are Oscar bloggers out there, Oscar prognostic- prognosticators, and what they're doing are creating these self fulfilling prophecies. Yeah. So they're they're not saying that Lapita Nyong'o is bad. What they're saying is is it was released too early. It was it's horror. And therefore the Academy won't like it. And so they've now built a narrative where they, they're trying to outthink the Academy and out assume what the Academy wants and therefore create a narrative where someone is either qualified or disqualified. So in the case of Joaquin Phoenix, you know, it's this, you know, incendiary film and he's throwing himself into it. And like, it's his turn. like, So the prognosticators are checking off boxes that the Academy wants and the Academy like fills in the like, okay, well, I guess that's what, you know, that's where all the buzz is, you know? And so it's this weird sort of Ouroboros of, of, uh, you know, I'm not sure where, you know, you know, who starts first in terms of, you know, how these acting things get locked in, but it, it creates less diversity. It creates a closed system. Well,
1: in the studios are probably like, well, you know, Hollywood Reporter, Variety, and Deadline are all saying that Joaquin Phoenix has it in the bag, so there's really no reason for us to put a serious campaign behind Adam Driver for a Marriage Story. Right. Exactly. Like,
0: like we can't compete. The the, the, the fix is in.
1: Yeah. So I, I don't know what the answer is to that. I, to be honest, I don't read a ton of other Oscar pro, Oscar prognosticating, so I don't really, uh, you know, especially that early in the season. I I'm not really seeing how they're framing things and i don't you know i don't know it's hard to like say this is blame because it is their job and when you're looking at historically when you're looking at what kinds of performances win best actor and you see walking phoenix and joker you're like well yep that's the kind of thing that does it so you know it are you not doing your job well enough if you're not calling it out early enough? I mean, are there people who just want the bragging rights of saying, you know, I called walking Phoenix would win back in September or whatever. I don't really know. Yeah.
0: I guess I feel like there's sort of, there's an over-reliance on creating certain narratives and that narratives create a sort of insular who, who is allowed to win and who is not allowed to win kind of structure. Yeah. Um, That's based on past performance And therefore cannot acknowledge change. And I think you honestly saw that this year when, again, we're saying like your head is telling you 1917 because you look towards the past and the past says, you know, check off these boxes. It has to be these things. And it doesn't lead. And then you're kind of blind to Parasite winning best picture.
1: Yeah, I mean all of the all of the precursors were pointing towards 1917 winning best picture and especially best director. I mean gosh, the the Directors Guild of Association or Directors Guild of America award um Is one of the most reliable predictors of Oscars success. I think it's like 17 of the last 18 winners won Best Director at the Oscars. The only one who didn't was Ben Affleck, and that's because he wasn't nominated at the Oscars. So you would have you were foolish to not predict Sam Mendes to win the Best Director Oscar, and yet the Academy went with Bong Joon-ho. 11 of the last 13 winners of the PGA Award went on to win Best Picture at the Oscars. 1917 won the PGA, didn't win Best, Best Picture. That went to Parasite. And I think we're seeing, uh, you know, as the Academy has diversified and expanded, I think we're seeing um, it's, its own voting body. Like, it, it, it has its own makeup. It's more international. It's more diverse. They're making their own decisions. I mean, we'll see. We could be having this conversation the opposite way around next year and going, like, well, Parasite was a fluke. Yeah,
0: that's, that's the thing. It's hard to it's hard to see trends, you know. You can't you know, one one or two films does not necessarily, you know, make a trend. But I think it'll be interesting to sort of see what happens next year.
1: Yeah. I'm you know, I'm hopeful. It feels like, you know, when Green Book won last year, it was like, well, Moonlight was a fluke. But now it's like, maybe Green Book was the fluke. Maybe because you know, Moonlight also did not win the Producer's Guild Award, did not win the Director's Guild Award, and while La La Land took Best Director, Moonlight took Best Picture. It was not predicted to because it didn't win that Producer's Guild Award. It didn't have the momentum. Right. It didn't have you know the number of nominations that you thought um, it would get to to win. You know, it it wasn't going to win Best Production Design or Best Cinematography. Um, so, you know, where was it going to pick up those other wins that are necessary to make it a best picture winner? Maybe that doesn't really matter anymore. You know, I, I still can't really explain why green book won last
0: year. Well, you know, it's funny. I would say also, you know, what I'm looking at is maybe it's not just a trend. Maybe it's just the pendulum swings back and forth. I was reminded, you know, after parasites, win, what it reminded me of is the swing in 2006 crash wins, best picture. And people are like, are you fucking serious? This yeah. is garbage. And then in 2007, the Academy swings way in the opposite direction and picks No Country for Old Men. Very dark, very different film, has a lot of critical support. And then, But then 2008 comes along, and they go for Slumdog Millionaire, which is kind of like a feel-good film again. So this notion like, well, the Academy is now this one way, I don't know if maybe that's even necessarily the correct prediction.
1: That's a good point. Uh, and I would also say, you know, Parasite is probably the boldest best picture winner since No Country for Old Men. Oh, I don't absolutely.
0: Think people, absolutely. I mean, it makes history. Yeah.
1: And I don't think people appreciate how bold of a winner No Country for Old Men was, especially when there were only five nominees for best picture. Like that kind of movie just was not the kind of movie that wins best picture. It was, you know, obtuse and dark and anticlimactic, um, just weird, um, uh, but yeah, that's a good point that it kind of swings back and forth. Um so what's going to win next year then? Something silly. I don't know. <laughs> Joker 2 Electric Boogaloo? J- Joker Joker 2.
0: <laughs> Society is still broken. Oh no. Um so yeah, so those are those are our thoughts on this year's Oscars. Um but again, very happy for Parasite. Um and uh, everyone involved in that film. Uh, also, a guy. I think. Quick shout out to Neon, who, you know, took that film and really played it well in terms of its distribution, in terms of its Oscar campaign. I think they deserve a lot of credit there as well.
1: Yeah. Again, really robust uh, theatrical rollout. It's made 167 million dollars worldwide now. Yeah. Uh, which is just spectacular, and uh, they're you know, re-expanding it into theaters soon. So more, more people will have the opportunity to see it in theater, which is where you should see it. I would highly recommend seeing it yeah, in theater.
0: It's it's so good. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, with that, let's move on to, to recently watched Adam. What have you seen lately? Uh,
1: I've been watching a show week to week on HBO that uh, I've been really enjoying uh, called the outsider, which is uh, based on a Stephen King book. Um, and it's, Starring Cynthia Erivo, Oscar nominee this year for Harriet. Um, And I like it a lot. It's uh, developed by Richard Price, who is a writer on um, – he's a novelist, but was also a writer on The Wire and The Night Of um, and The Deuce. And it's essentially like True Detective, but with a Stephen King supernatural slant. Um, it basically begins with, um, a young boy's body being found just like horribly mutilated and all the evidence, uh, pointing towards, uh, this man played by Jason Bateman, um, just kind of like a nice family man, uh, in the, um, city, um, who had done it. And The evidence is overwhelming. Ben Mendelsohn as a cop, um, and things kind of get stranger from there. The uh, supporting cast is phenomenal. It's Bill Camp, Julianne Nicholson, uh, Mare Whittingham, um, Cynthia Erivo, as I said before. And Jason Bateman directs the first two episodes, and it's really spectacular direction. Um, And I've watched Ozark, and Ozark is fine. But I think this is a really huge step up for him in terms of um, what he's doing with the camera and with the characters. But it's really just a a really engrossing mystery. Um, You know, if that hook, True Detective, with a supernatural bent um, strikes your fancy, I think you'll like this show. Uh, I think it's only eight episodes or so. I think we're about halfway through with it now. Um, but I'm really enjoying it. I think it's, a uh, you know, in this age of peak TV, it's, it's hard to kind of find stuff that's worth watching. I've been watching the first couple of episodes of Avenue 5, the new comedy from uh, um, Armando Iannucci, and it's not great. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I'll keep watching it. Um, I don't know. It should, on paper, it should be the funniest thing in the world, but it's just not um, but the outsider is well worth your time, and the fact that it's a, a limited series um, makes it, you know, it's a close-ended mystery. So, it's ten episodes. My mistake. But yeah, uh, Karen Kusama directs an episode. It's Richard Price and Dennis Lehane, so you've got these kind of veteran, um, kind of crime novelists working on um, the scripts. So, just a really great kind of slow-burn mystery.
0: All right, I I might check it out. <laughs> yeah. Depends on like how much like it's gonna bum me out that, to be to be brutally honest yeah it's uh it's
1: disturbing i mean it's genuinely chilling i will say like it's a genuinely kind of scary and creepy show which um i don't get scared super easily so i find that aspect of it interesting but um it's a weird thing it's a weird weird show
0: okay uh, for me, uh, my wife and I, my wife started watching this actually while I was at Sundance. She's like, you need to watch this show when you get home. Uh, it's Sex Education on Netflix. And I'd heard heard about it, but the thing about Netflix is there's too much content. <laughs> there's too many things to watch. Um, so, but I, I decided to give it a shot and watch it with her. And I've really enjoyed it. It's very sweet and funny. Um, the premise of the show is that Asa Butterfield plays this teenager, uh Otis the the film takes place at a British high school mostly Otis's mom played by Gillian Anderson is a sex therapist so Otis has grown up not only with that awkwardness of having your mom be a sex therapist but also with a lot of knowledge about uh, you know human sexual psychology and then so when this sort of um tough girl uh from his school named Maeve uh, sort of finds that he's good at talking with people about their sexual issues. She sees an opportunity for them to make some profit off of it where she'll find the clients and he'll talk them through their sexual issues. And it's sort of it's a very sex positive show. it's very it's it's very diverse in terms of the relationships that it shows um, and but it's still very much in that kind of sort of uh, you know you're a teenager and you have feelings and, Uh, you know, you're not sure how to relate to other people. And you're also sort of paranoid that everyone else is more sexually experienced than you. And actually everyone is still figuring things out sexually. Um, And the show is a really good balance between drama and comedy and sort of keeping you invested in the emotional stakes. And I think the entire cast is terrific. Um, And it just, it goes down very well. It's not, I would say, but honestly, the best thing about it is that like, I think some Netflix shows have sort of this sort of low boil mediocrity to them. They're sort of like, eh, it's there. And I think sex education is genuinely good. Like I genuinely, like it's one of those shows that I haven't been binging because I kind of just like watching an episode and sitting with it. And it's not that I couldn't watch the next one, but I just kind of been like, Oh, I enjoyed that. And I want to savor the show because I'm enjoying it so much. So it was recently renewed. Actually, earlier today, it was renewed for a third season. Um, but the first two seasons of Sex Education are on Netflix now.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I've heard good things as well. I just didn't necessarily know what it's about. Is it set in the '80s or does it? have No, it's like set a- in the
0: present day. It's set in the present oh. day, but it has kind of like a timeless look to it. So it doesn't yeah. feel it doesn't feel extremely online, even though all the kids have cell phones. And you know, one of the uh, you know, like uh, the plot line of one of the episodes is that uh, a sexual picture of this one person gets passed around and. Uh, you know, Otis and Maeve are trying to find out who, who originated the photo. And so it's, it's, it is tuned in to these modern issues, but the show doesn't feel like, Oh, it's, it it knows how to have enough of a timeless quality to it so that it feels universal. Yeah.
1: Huh.
0: Uh, It doesn't feel like, uh, euphoria kids today. They're crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I would recommend sex education. All right. Uh, Thank you all for listening. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.